Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of GTI Insights, the Global Taiwan Institute's policy podcast. My name is Marshall Reed, and I'm a program manager here with GTI. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Prashant Paramaswaran, a fellow with the Wilson Center's Asia program. In addition to all his great work at Wilson, he also serves as a director at Bauer Group Asia and as a senior columnist with The Diplomat. Political scientist by training, Prashant specializes in really interesting work on Southeast Asian political and economic dynamics, broader Asian defense issues, and U.S. foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific more broadly. He's a prolific contributor to publications around the world, and his new book, Elusive Balances, Shaping U.S.-Southeast Asia Strategy, was published earlier this year. Prashant, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Good to be with you. Well, Prashant, I'm so glad to have you here to discuss one of the world's most dynamic, rapidly changing, and more important regions, which is Southeast Asia. For the past several decades, the region has really emerged as a critical hub for international trade, a growing center of manufacturing and innovation, and an increasingly important front in the global confrontation between the U.S. and the People's Republic of China. At the same time, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, which is the 10-member multilateral grouping that encompasses much of the region, has developed into a powerful player on the international stage in its own right. Accordingly, nations around the world, including the United States, the PRC, and importantly for our conversation, Taiwan, have increasingly sought to expand their presences in the region and build economic, political, and cultural ties with regional powers. With all this in mind, I'm so excited to have you here, Prashant, to discuss the political and economic dynamics of Southeast Asia, as well as the region's broader approach to cross-strait relations. Well, to kick things off, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the countries of Southeast Asia and ASEAN more specifically, and how they approach the Taiwan Strait. Historically, how, how have the countries of this region viewed China and Taiwan, and how has that evolved over time, if it has at all? Yeah, so I think, I mean, it, as you sort of outlined very usefully in, in the introduction, it, it is useful to one of the points that I make in, in, in the book, uh, Elusive Balances, is that, you know, for both Southeast Asia, as well as really any entity that we're talking about in the Indo-Pacific region, it's always useful to start with why do these entities matter for their own sake rather than just for U.S. interests? And, and, and for ASEAN and Southeast Asia, you're right. You know, these are tremendously important uh, entities. You know, we're talking about a population of over 600 million people, now the fifth largest economy in the world, set to rise even further um, into the future. So the United States and ASEAN combined, you know, we're talking about a population of about a billion people, right? So about a sixth of the planet. So this is a really significant and important relationship for the United States. And I think for ASEAN and for Southeast Asian countries, it really has been um, a little bit of a back and forth in terms of how they've navigated dynamics, um, more specifically with respect to China and, and the Taiwan Strait. I think we're very used to sort of thinking about the current uh, landscape where you know China is rising or risen, whichever you, you you prefer, but it's an economically significant power that is much, doing much more in the security domain as well as in all really realms of, of the relationship in Southeast Asia. If you look at some of the polling data from the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies that addresses these questions on an annual basis, Southeast Asian uh, elites, um, and increasingly, if you look at the public polling, Southeast Asian publics already see China as the primary economic actor, and in some cases, even the major political and security player 
in Southeast Asia. But this was not the case if you look back several decades. In fact, after you know the the end of the Second World War and and the, during the Cold War, China was actually seen as a major source of instability in Southeast Asia, um, and it. To the point of actually encouraging insurgencies that were happening in some of these Southeast Asian countries. So that institutional memory is still there. China's policies with respect to overseas Chinese, for example, you know, these are things that Southeast Asian countries don't forget. Um, but I think in the more contemporary context, after the end of the Cold War in the 1990s and, and the 2000s, we have seen China have a more economically dominant role in Southeast Asia and the wider Indo-Pacific region. And I think we're slowly starting to see over the last five to 10 years, um, China take a more active security role as well. I think the big question with respect to cross-strait relations is, you know, Southeast Asian countries are fond of saying that they don't want to choose between any of these countries, whether it's the United States and China or, or, or Australia or Japan or their economic linkages with Taiwan, for example. Uh, but the issue is that Beijing increasingly is making these countries make those choices quite explicitly. And so the question for Southeast Asian states really isn't the question of you know how to pursue relationship with China. It's more about how you can have that relationship with China, but also still preserve the other diversified uh, set of relationships that you want to have, not with the United States, with Japan, with Australia. And then for Taiwan, the, the key question is, Taiwan has long been uh, an economic player in Southeast Asia. That is actually not a, a new story. The sort of go-south policies, for example, that were enacted uh, with respect to Southeast Asia, that, that's not new. But I think, you know, when Taiwan is sort of advocating these policies, like the new Southbound policy under um, Tsai Ing-wen, it's doing so in a context where a lot more different actors are converging on Southeast Asia because of Southeast Asia's growing importance. So, you know, the Australians are doing a lot more. Japan is doing a lot more on, on the security side, even, you know, the United States, India is doing a lot more. South Korea is doing a lot more. So the question really for Taiwan is, how does Taiwan position itself um, from a sort of competitive landscape perspective? You know, what are the value adds that Taiwan brings to the table and what uh, do Southeast Asian countries see in that respect? Well, that's great. I mean, I think you've done a great job of, of really setting the stage and shedding light on what's clearly a really diverse and dynamic region. You know, I think there's a tendency, whether in D.C. or in other capitals around the world, to to treat these large multilateral organizations, whether it's EU or in this case, ASEAN, as kind of monolithic entities and, you know, operating as one, when in reality, they are these very diverse, you know, multifarious entities that have lots of different countries operating on very different strategies. So I think you've done a great job of really providing some context there. You know, you mentioned in your, your overview that Taiwan has been pursuing some policies towards ASEAN for some time. And you mentioned the new southbound policy, which you know, was first instituted following Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration in 2016, and was really designed to just expand Taiwan's presence with countries both in Southeast Asia and South Asia more broadly, and really build out these sort of economic, cultural, people-to-people -people ties with these countries. I'd be interested to hear from your perspective, how successful has Taiwan been through the new southbound policy in building these ties with Southeast Asia? And, you know, more broadly, are there overlaps between the NSP, the new Southbound policy, and ASEAN's broader development goals? 
Yeah, so I think the the new southbound policy, if you look at the the data economically speaking, there's no question that there's been um, success on that score. If you look at um, you know trade data, if you look at business links with key countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, um, even some of the official data that's released by the Taiwanese government sort of backs this up that it has been an economic success. You know, I th I think the bigger sort of challenge, and this is by the way not just a challenge that's unique to Taiwan. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the big you know we we sort of talked about you know a, a decade or so ago under the Obama administration as being the United States pivoting to the Indo-Pacific or Asia and. Part of that is a focus on Southeast Asia as well. But the real story actually with respect to Southeast Asia is that really everyone is pivoting to Southeast Asia and, and the wider Indo-Pacific. You're seeing more involvement by Europe, for example. Some Latin American countries are doing a lot more. And really the big question is how to engage as comprehensively as possible. And so the pillars in, in, the, in the new Southbound policy they're not just about economics, they're about regional linkages, they're about people-to-people -people ties. And so I think that's where the room for improvement is. And, and of course, the other challenge is, this is a challenge with other countries as well. The United States, in, in fact, is facing the similar challenge. With respect to, if you're promoting people-to-people -people links, for example, in realms like education, one thing is to have ASEAN countries send students to Taiwan. The other part is encouraging Taiwanese to also go to Southeast Asian countries, and also not just the regular Southeast Asian countries that have a lot of contacts already with Taiwan, like say, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, for example, the relatively more advanced countries, but also how does Taiwan, you know, make sure it's engaging all of the 10 countries in ASEAN plus East Timor or Timor-Leste, which is not part of ASEAN, but it's part of Southeast Asia. And I think that really is the challenge. And that's about, you know, everything from talent exchanges to regional links, but also, it's tougher to engage on these issues because of, you know, as 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 you know better better than me. I mean, the the issues with respect to uh, recognition and China being very careful to, you know, at any sort of whiff of countries uh, seen to be recognizing or given Taiwan more status, you know, seeking to block that in some way. So there are some sensitivities, but I would even say, given where we have been in the last four or five years, you know, the pandemic where Taiwan clearly, particularly in the initial stages of, of the pandemic, showed that it was doing much better than most of the initial countries in the Indo-Pacific region, in spite of the fact that it's left out of some of the global health organizations that are extremely important. The fact that we are, you know, witnessing in real time reinforcement of what we always always knew, which is that Taiwan is the epicenter of what we're talking about in terms of the semiconductor industry and the supply chain disruptions that we're seeing. Um, and the fact that Taiwan has this sort of record of, you know, resilience that is important from a Southeast Asian perspective, because Southeast Asia is one of the most disaster prone regions in the world. So all of those things, I think, reinforce the case for a more comprehensive set of engagements with Southeast Asia. And I understand there are challenges around that. But I would say in terms of functional cooperation, you know, in, in virtually every meeting now that you see between governments, the themes that come up are you know, green and environmental sustainability, uh, supply chains, and digital. And I don't think you can get away from the fact that on all three of those issues, Taiwan is at the center of the conversation in the Indo-Pacific region. And so I think the case for functional engagement is pretty clear. The The challenge is really going to be how comprehensive that engagement is. Sure. I mean, I, I think all of us in the, the Taiwan watching field have been excited and hardened to see 
the, the, the gains that Taiwan's been able to make, you know, all around the world, but particularly in Southeast Asia over the last couple of years, I'd like to change gears very slightly. You, you mentioned the U.S.'s, you know, so-called pivot to Asia and how that's gone in recent years that everybody is kind of doing it. Uh, but, you know, just last month, the Biden administration took the step of welcoming the leaders of, of most ASEAN nations, all but one, uh, to Washington for the U.S. ASEAN Special Summit, which was you know, really a long time coming. It had been kind of on hold for a couple of years. So the, while, while the meeting was, you know, ostensibly intended to, to demonstrate the U.S. kind of renewed commitment to the region and, you know, rebuild ties that have been sort of allowed to languish a little bit in recent years, I think in a, in a lot of commentaries that the specter of that sort of broader U.S.-China rivalry was also present. So, in your in your opinion, looking at this summit from from a distance, you know, what what is the significance of this summit? You know, how how important was this for these countries in ASEAN and for the United States? And and how does Southeast Asia fit into the U.S.'s overall approach to the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, I mean, I, I think on the summit itself, I, I think the fact that it happened at all really is an achievement in and of itself. Uh, I think on on the question of U.S. commitment to Southeast Asia, you're right in terms of framing it to the, the, the question of there had been questions, particularly under the Trump administration, where we did see an ebb in U.S. engagement, collectively speaking, in Southeast Asia and, and, and ASEAN relative to what we saw in the Obama administration. Um, I think it was important for the administration to send a signal that you know, it was committed to Southeast Asia and committed to ASEAN as an institution, multilaterally speaking. So I, I think that that was important. It's also the fact that, I mean, there were plans to actually hold a meeting, a summit of this sort under the Trump administration. It didn't materialize. And in fact, the even the Biden administration had plans to host the summit earlier this year, but then the, the plans fell through. So I think it is important to note that the, the fact that it happened, particularly given that this was right before Biden made his outreach to Asia more generally with a, with an in-person series of interactions, the fact that the administration was able to pull it off is, is important. I think the bigger point that has been reinforced by the administration repeatedly is that the United States understands that um, the in terms of a geopolitical competition, there is this sort of US-China geopolitical rivalry competition, whatever we want choose to call it. I think there is a recognition uh, by all sides that there, that is happening. But really defining a positive, affirmative agenda that the United States wants to advance, that's not just about competition, but more about in this uh, environment of, as I said, you know, everyone is sort of pivoting to the Indo-Pacific, everyone's doing more in Southeast Asia. Really, what is the U.S. approach and what are the value adds that the United States itself can bring to the table? And I think some of that is pretty evident, particularly in the security side, where Southeast Asian countries continue to rely, no matter you know what they might say in, in public. I think they all privately recognize that the United States has a really important security role to play in the region. But I think on the economic dimension, that hasn't been as clear, particularly because you, you saw, you've seen a pattern where the United States has come and set the table on the, you know, the initially called Trans-Pacific Partnership, now rebranded the CPTPP, and then left that. And so that's where I think some of the aspects of the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy that they released in February are helping fill those gaps. So the, the Indo-Pacific economic framework, for example, you know, I did also note, and, and I think it was noted quite favorably in, in Southeast Asia, that 
in the plan of action for advancing the Indo-Pacific strategy, one of those items was actually advancing a relationship with ASEAN and holding that special summit. So the fact that the United States is thinking about deliverables and very action-oriented approaches rather than just speaking generally about commitment uh, is really important. I would say just one final thing. You know, one of the points that I make in the book, um, Elusive Balances, is that, you know, really this is a challenge for U.S. policymakers to confront what I call a sort of balance of commitment challenge, which is making sure that the United States, you know, is leveraging its existing strengths and on, on the security side in particular and some of the diplomatic engagements, but also continuing to innovate and make sure that it is uh, playing to some of its strengths that are not quite advertised. So things like U.S. investment, investment by U.S. companies, but then also, you know, trying to chip away at things that China has been doing uh, really well. And some of that is on the economic side, but I would also say some of that is in fields like strategic communications, where I don't think the United States gets as much credit as it should for some of the things that it's already doing in Southeast Asia. And, and so that is, I think, something that the administration is trying to work through, and they've been doing a really good job on some aspects of that messaging. I mentioned, you know, sort of framing things as, you know, the sort of billion futures initiative that, that they've propagated with respect to the United States and Southeast Asia really does help broaden the conversation beyond just ASEAN, which tends to be a, a you know, a sort of bureaucratic organization. But I think where we really need to make the point is that this is about the relationship between the United States and the peoples of Southeast Asia. And I think we could say the same thing with respect to Taiwan and Southeast Asia. Really, the, the people are the drivers of not just current cooperation, but also future cooperation. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF, because I, th I think that really is kind of the, the story of the day for Southeast Asia and a lot of East Asia right now. Um, you know, Just recently, during his tour of East Asia, President Biden announced the 13 nations that would really make up the, the initial form of IPEF. And while that list included the majority of ASEAN states, it notably left out Taiwan. So I'd be interested to hear from your perspective, do you have a sense of what ASEAN states are looking for? from IPEF? You know, what are they expecting? Are they optimistic about it? And kind of building on that, you know, this is a region that in recent years has kind of been full of acronyms. You know, you've got CPTPP, RCEP. I'd be interested to hear from the perspective of these ASEAN states that have signed on to several of these agreements, you know, how is IPEF different? Is it different? Do they view it as different? Or is this just more of the same? Yeah, I mean, I think the sense, um, you know, talking to some Southeast Asian counterparts, um, including some who were in engaged in some of the, the administration's initial branding of the initiative, I, I think they're still adopting sort of a wait and see approach. I, I think there is a little bit of um, uncertainty about where this is headed. But I think there is a general recognition and acknowledgement of the fact that it is positive that the administration despite all the challenges it has faced. I mean, even when the Biden administration came into office, not to mention, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, which we're still living with, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the fact that the United States is coming up and continuing to develop a positive, affirmative economic agenda for the region is much appreciated because I think that was something that was seen as missing in the Trump administration, even though the Trump administration did also do some things on the margins, particularly on investment and encouraging companies to do uh, more business in the region. I, I think that overall economic approach 
was was missing. So I think that that is acknowledged. I think the where the challenges are with respect to IPEF, as as we're sort of calling it, is that I th- I think there isn't a recognition yet about where it ranks um, and where it is situated relative to the other mechanisms in the region, which is really from where. Uh, if you're a Southeast Asian country looking outwards, that's where the conversation begins, rather than, you know, the conversation about what the United States is contributing. So if you're if you're sitting in a Southeast Asian capital and you're looking at, you know, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership (RCEP), which has already been signed, it's it's an extremely large free trade area, even though the standards are not extremely high. And then you have CPTPP, which is a much more select group where the standards are much higher. So where does IPEV rank in terms of that? So is it a mechanism where it's going to try to be more inclusive, but the standards are lower, or it's going to be more exclusive and the standards are going to be higher? And I don't think we have a sense yet where where the administration, I think, has been focused on is just making sure that this is an initiative that has initial traction, particularly, as you correctly noted, within Southeast Asia and, and, and ASEAN. So in fact, during the U.S. ASEAN Special Summit, you know, this wasn't an official agenda point at the meeting, but it, but it was discussed, um, and the administration did engage Southeast Asian countries on on the score and try to affirm that policy. Keep in mind, you know, one of the outcomes at the U.S. ASEAN Special Summit was that the United States and ASEAN agreed formally and publicly to elevate their relationship to a comprehensive strategic partnership. And I think one of the things that uh, ASEAN countries will be looking to figure out from the United States is what can the United States bring to the table on some of the issues that were in the joint vision statement, um, whether it's you know digital and and connectivity or or, or supply chains or or the environment and and sustainability. I think that those are some of the key areas and questions. I think on IPEF, those questions are still unanswered with respect to where the United States is. I think where the administration is sort of gaining some ground and gaining some traction is the fact that they're addressing a lot of 21st century issues that, frankly, we were not talking about as much 10 or 15 years ago. So things like supply chains, which have become very mainstreamed in our discussion, things like you know the digital uh, economy, uh, connectivity, um, resilience, sustainability. It's not that we weren't talking about these things, but I think the focus on things like the COVID-19 pandemic um, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought these questions more to the forefront. So I don't know where this is going to end up, but based on where it's starting, it seems that the administration's narrative on the value add is sort of this is addressing 21st century issues that were not addressed in previous trade agreements. But the challenge there, obviously, going back to the region and the demand side is that Southeast Asian countries are asking questions about, you know, if this is not a trade agreement, okay, maybe it's not a, tr- a trade agreement as such, is it at least providing some kind of market access? And the answer from the U.S. administration has, so far has been no, it's not providing market access, and it's really about standards. Then the question becomes, if you're not providing any kind of incentives in terms of market access, what other incentives can you provide? Capacity building, technical assistance, and so on and so forth. And I think the administration is still working through that. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it really does seem clear that there's a lot that remains uncertain about IPEF. But as you mentioned, you know, this could be a way going forward to, to really confront some of these really 21st century problems that are confronting East Asia, Southeast Asia, and the rest of the world. I'd be interested to go back to, to something we said at the start of the talk about IPEF, which is its you know initial makeup. Uh, as 
originally announced. It included 13 nations from really across East Asia and across ASEAN, but notably did not include Taiwan. Be interested here, given all that we've talked about, all this engagement that Taiwan's been able to achieve in Southeast Asia, despite being left out of you know larger economic groupings, what do you think is the future going to hold for Taiwan in the region? Will this continuing exclusion from these multilateral groupings you know, harm it and hold it back as it really tries to build these relationships? Or will it continue to be able to really operate outside them and continue to build ties without these sort of multilateral frameworks assisting it? Yeah, I think on Taiwan and sort of its economic role in terms of these groupings and also more generally, I mean, I would say that there's a component of exclusion that we've already talked about with respect to Taiwan and and some of these groupings. There's also the dynamic, really, that that coexists with a sort of economic importance and relevance that sort of speaks for itself, I would say, just to just to put it sort of simply, you know, I would say, you know, I I talked about sort of supply chains and and semiconductors, you know, but also I, I do think, you know, in Southeast Asia, it is difficult for me to think of a time going back several decades about uh, you know, more of an interest in terms of thinking about Taiwan relative to the regional Indo-Pacific landscape. So the fact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has prompted questions about, you know, China's, you know, what China might potentially do in Taiwan and the question of U.S. commitment, you know, that is something that Southeast Asian countries are very worried about and are discussing and are thinking about in terms of their long-term planning. And same thing with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic and some of these other concerns with respect to cyber and reinforcing digital resilience, where Taiwan is really ground zero for some of these challenges and addressing them. So I think really what we're seeing is a dynamic where there is a case for functional cooperation, but there is this continued dynamic, as you say, um, Taiwan being left out of some of these conversations. Now, I will say it is not for uh, it is not to sort of de-emphasize what Taiwan is involved in and is already doing. So, you know, whether you talk about mechanisms like the the G- GCTF, for example, um, you talk about new southbound policy, or even you know some of the new mechanisms that the United States is exploring with Taiwan. The United States has just you know, for example, recently launched a, a new initiative dealing with issues around. 21st century trade. And if you look at, I mean, I've just sort of, you know, take a step back a little bit and you look at some of the issues that are addressed in that initiative, the sort of U.S.-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade, there are mechanisms and issues that are addressed there that are not addressed in some of the lower standard agreements. So things like state-owned enterprises, non-market policies, um, and these reinforce, you know, anti-corruption is another one. These reinforce Taiwan's role as a sort of high standards partner for the United States to engage, but then also for other countries around the region to sort of look up to in terms of where they are economically. But also, I talked about this earlier in terms of, you know, Southeast Asia facing its own governance challenges. And no one has, no one country has a single answer to how to govern populations and societies. But you know, I do think that if you look at the long term, some of the issues that Taiwan is dealing with on um, sustainability, on resilience, natural disasters, these are all the same issues that Southeast Asian people are are asking questions about their governments on, on how to address. So we shouldn't lose sight of that 
set of issues, even as we focus uh, on which mechanisms, you know, Taiwan may be excluded from or or included in um, in that respect. And the other thing I, I would just say, it's really important in Southeast Asia to keep the focus on, yes, governments are um, what we're talking about when we talk about government to government cooperation, but there's a whole other conversation about the populations in Southeast Asia. Uh, and we've seen really a diverse set of reactions um, with respect to Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, but also questions about, you know, when you ask Southeast Asian countries, you know, I just saw sort of a recent poll that came out on Southeast Asian populations and, and the question of, you know, if uh, there, you know, China were to invade Taiwan, you know, what percentage of that population would uh, sort of uh, go for cutting economic ties entirely from Taiwan? And if you look at the aggregate Southeast Asian responses from publics, uh, most of them actually don't favor that um, because I think there is a recognition of, you know, number one, this is doing something that's against our own economic self-interest. But also number two, I, you know, I do think there is a recognition of a certain amount of empathy with countries that are smaller countries in particular that are trampled upon in ways that go against the international rules and norms. And a lot of these countries in Southeast Asia are smaller countries that take international law very seriously, not just because they're interested in law for its own sake, but because it's an existential issue about their own existence. I mean, if Singapore, for example, you know, doesn't take international law seriously, that means that you know, bigger countries can just trample on its sovereignty whenever they, they want. And, you know, similar case could be made for Malaysia and you sort of go down the list from there. You know, in fact, Cambodia, for example, has been very, even though there's some concerns about its links to China, it's been very outspoken on Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, in terms of that being a key issue of, of sovereignty as the ASEAN chair this year. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I think that's a great way to end. Just, you know, you've done a great job of really painting this region as a, as a dynamic and really diverse region. And I'm glad you drew attention to the fact that it's not just governments. It's not just high level interactions. It's people to people ties. And it's, you know, how the people feel about this as well. Again, I, I think you've done a great job of, of shedding light on a region that all too often, again, is painted as sort of this monolithic area. And I, I think we'll all be watching closely to see what happened next. It seems like there's a lot of Things that are in flux right now in the region, but we'll be interested to see what happens next. For our listeners, if you're interested in, in learning more about this region and learning more about Prashant's work, I, I definitely encourage you to check out his new book, which came out a couple months ago, which again is Elusive Balances, Shaping U.S.-Southeast Asia Strategy, and that's available on Amazon. Prashant, thank you again for taking the time. Good to be with you. Thank you again to all of our listeners for, for joining us for another episode of GTI Insights. Many thanks also to the great staff and interns at GTI for all their help with every step of producing this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about GTI, be sure to check out our website at globaltaiwan.org, where you can find more information about our Global Taiwan Brief and our frequent public seminars. You can also listen to more episodes of GTI Insights on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been GTI Insights.